The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage and explores the world of planning and strategy development. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry and hear firsthand how they made some of America's most historic decisions. I'm your host, Mark Lavin, the Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy at Army North. And I'm here with Seth Barham, the Public Affairs Operations Chief. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Welcome back to the General Planning Podcast. Ready to go behind the scenes with me, as always, is uh, Seth Barham. And today we've got the Deputy G5 back, Mr. Kerry Strait. This episode, we are talking about strategy development first principles, going beyond ends, ways, means, risk. We've talked on this show a lot about aspects of strategy and planning, but today we're going to touch on the basic principles of strategy development and give our listeners the secret recipe. If you are a planner or strategist and you want to know what to do or how to pull a strategy together, well, get your pen and paper out because we have a great episode lined up with Major General Retired Chris McPadden as our guest. With 35 years of military experience and three recent years in industry, Chris is currently starting his own strategy development and executive coaching consulting firm. Truth in Lending, I had the pleasure of working with General McPadden for a couple years while he was on active duty. So, sir, great to have you on today. Mark, great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Before we get into the how-to of strategy, I'd like to give a quick overview of your bio, sir. 35 years active duty, Major General McPadden served as a Director, Stran- uh, Director Strategy Plans and Policy, U.S. Army Staff, of the G-35, where he led development and implementation of U.S. Army strategy driving all operations, plans, and activities for readiness and modernization globally. He was a deputy director before that at the Joint Strategic Planning for the Joint Staff, J-5, where he proposed and led the implementation of the concept of global integration. Prior to that, he was a chief commander's action group for Commander U.S. Central Command, where he led the team responsible for preparing General Mattis for all professional engagements throughout the Middle East, District of Columbia and Tampa during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. And where I came to know about him was uh, when he was the Chief of Plans, Multinational Forces Iraq, where he led theater-wide planning efforts in support of the President's direction to draw down forces from 300,000 personnel to 500 bases and 50,000 personnel. He is married with two wonderful adult kids, and we are thrilled he could join us today. So quite a career, sir. I'm going to kick it us. Uh, I'm going to kick us off with the, just get straight forward to the questions. You know, I've worked for you in the past, and I know how you like to get right down to business. So what do you think are the first principles of strategy development, and how have you put those principles to work in your military career or even since then? Thanks, Mark. And I'd probably just kick off a very gracious introduction, but just to thank you, Carrie and Seth, for your service with this. And for anybody serving in this community in the military, DOD, just You can never thank people enough, it seems, for their service, Uh, more and more for the the challenges and demands of a career or however long you serve. Serving the nation is really a distinctive thing, obviously a distinctive service, and it needs to be recognized. And so just thank you, thank you, thank you for your service. Thank Um, you. Yeah, thanks, sir. I appreciate that, sir. Thanks for your service as well. And it's been an honor serving. I know Carrie and I go back to when I was a major tremendous professional and mark you also as a major and just your great success and then getting to know you master sergeant barham and your recent promotion congratulations thank you sir great 
starting question here, and I've spoken in a number of forums over the years on strategic planning, and with about 15 years of that, uh, in terms of experience of that uh, focus in my career, it, to me it comes down to essentially casting and manifesting vision. That's really how I would summarize strategic planning in a nutshell. And to me, it comes down to three simple key elements. The planner, the plan, and the process. And when I talk to people about this, I usually use actually a shape to help people remember what I'm talking about. So if you can't remember exactly what I spoke about, if you can remember the shapes, you can get the whole speech here, but the whole talk. But for a planner, I like to use a cube three meters cubed is what I call it. Because we all tend to live in a, or work in a three meter cube space. It's amazing, even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has a three meter cube space that he works in his office, even at the highest level of our military. And for the plan, I like to use a three-legged stool that really comes from a from a uh, essay from the War College, a retired colonel who wrote about strategy, a three-legged stool uh, symbolizing essentially a structure that can stand stably uh, based on three things, ends, ways, and means. And then the process, I like to use a barbell. And that represents essentially the workout, how you're actually going to work through uh, as a planner with a plan to actually bring it to reality. Um, in terms of the cube, maybe just to emphasize a little more, coming back to that, it's really that right person in the right place doing the right thing can change the planet. It really comes down to talent management. So you get that planner in the right space, worked in some very obscure places in the planet, as many planners can attest and many service members can attest. But to me, the significance of your contribution is not a function of the location that you provide it. Sometimes you may feel like you're just not getting recognized or whatever it is, but if you get what you're doing as a planner, if you get that right, you can change the planet. I worked with, we, I worked with a, a number of planners at CENCOM. One of those planners, Major Mike Adderley, was responsible for I basically proposed to him to create a theater campaign plan. It was just an idea. It wasn't a requirement. And I can tell you more about that story, but he was the guy who created that plan. And here's Mike, Major Mike Adderley in a, essentially a possum infested trailer in the CENTCOM parking lot in the 2005 timeframe. And he creates a plan they actually goes all the way to the Secretary of Defense and so compelling that every command in the world has to create a theater campaign plan. The reason we have theater campaign plans is because, in my view, Major Mike Adderley was the right person in the right place at the right time. I proposed it to him and he took it on. And frankly, it, that's an argument that I've seen that many times. That's just one quick example. The, in terms of the plan and the three-legged stool ends ways means example there is it is amazing when you study plans when I first started working in planning I started reviewing a lot of different plans and I 
because I wanted to understand them better at all levels. And I was amazed at how many plans that I read at that time, this is 2004 timeframe in DOD that actually didn't have one of the three legs of the stool. So we talk about ends, ways, means, but it really will not stand without all three, but you can make it sound really good if you just have ends and maybe ways, but you just don't have the resources or you don't detail those. It's not going to stand. So you have to have all those three work together and it's a lot of hard work to make that happen. And then in terms of the process and the barbell, uh, General Mattis actually made a, a, a statement to me, he said, good people with bad processes, the bad processes will win out nine times out of 10 as so well put. Uh, so you have to have a good process, critical element of manifesting a plan is to have a good process to bring it about. I like to describe that in terms of essentially an X and Y axis. Along the X axis is collaboration. Along the Y axis is venues for review. And those correlate with each other. I like, you know, there's a proverb that says, make war with many counselors and success is assured. And it is absolutely essential to get as many inputs to a plan that you possibly can, because then it will be airtight. But at the same time, you have to get venues of review to get advice at the high, higher and higher levels, all the way up to whatever the level it is that has to be approved. So you could have a very well collaborated plan the global war on terror was actually a good example of that years ago it was worldwide collaboration but initially it wasn't getting any levels of review so it was an amazing plan but nobody really understood it because senior leadership wasn't reviewing it or you can just focus on the venues Here's an example in a crisis when something happens, and this happened when I was in the joint staff, a crisis happens and suddenly you need the major, the one star, the two star, the three star, and the four star to get together in a small room in a crisis scenario and provide answers to the Secretary of Defense and the President within hours. Look, if you don't have any collaboration that's gone into that product at that point. You can get reviews at all levels simultaneously, but it's not going to be a very well thought through solution. It will be, it may be great because of the quality of the people that you have, but that's not a good process, right? So you wanna build a process that's proactive over time that enables collaboration and brings plans to the right levels of review. So in the joint staff, there is somewhat of that process, but we honed it a bit when I was there, where we created, a, there was a kernel, let's say, uh, we were creating camp, global campaign plans, we collaborated, so a planner owns one of those campaign plans, collaborated globally, every command involved, any person that wanted to be involved that had knowledge with the plan, as they could by classification was involved. And then we, there, we had a council of colonels. We created a one and two star level venue for review. There's the 
automatically the three-star level of the tank and the four-star level of the tank. And we planned the review and the production review of these plans out over time, really over about a six-month to 15-month timeline. And it incorporated this collaboration and these levels of review because you're managing five different campaign plans at the, the development and, and and execution of those five plans. The first one of those plans, I won't say what, what the threat was, but there are the, we know that there are the five major threats that the Department of Defense focuses on, the Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and VEOs. The first one of those plans that we went to review, when we finally went to present the final plan for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we had collaborated with every planner at every level, and we had brought we had brought the products to every level. So here we are at the final plan presentation, and we apportioned two hours to the tank that day because we knew it was going to be an extended tank. It would we thought it would take a long time to present this plan. The J5 presents the briefing, and in 30 minutes. It was over. Wow. It was approved. It was unanimously approved. And at that time, we also brought in all of the four-star commanders in the world. We, up to that point, we had only had the chairman's, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all the Joint Chiefs and the chairman in the room. We said, look, if we're going to collaborate globally, all the commanders have to be involved. And ultimately, you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has to give best military advice. The only way he can do that is by maximum collaboration and maximum input in terms of the review from all commanders. So we had literally every commander across the globe, either on VTC or in the room, one of the one of the planners said to me right before the briefing, we're in the tank, and he says, "Sir, there are 93 stars in the room, wow. let alone on the screen." And so, 30 minutes, the it was approved. It's almost like catastrophic success. It was catastrophic success for a plan review of that kind. In fact, we had so much time. The chairman, of Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, "We have so much time." I want to hear from every four star personally what you think about the plan and what do you, how are you to execute it? And within 15 minutes, every four star in the globe that was involved with that plan said, I approve it. It's why they collaborated and I'm ready to execute. So with 15 minutes, it basically took 45 minutes to get everybody's buy-in across the world. And to me, that's super compelling, right? Because that's having a good process of collaboration and venues. Actually, we put the timeline together. You probably know Chris Marchetti. He and I were actually the ones who, he put together the timeline, but we talked through this and that was a clear manifestation of it. So again, the planner, the plan, and then that process. But when you have that process tight it essentially amounts to what I like to call collective, a collective understanding or collective consciousness of everybody's involved. And that's super compelling when it goes from the junior NCO and officer to the highest level of our military 
in creation and execution, and obviously it has global implications. So that would be the the snapshot of the three main things that go into casting and manifesting a vision. And I can give you many examples beyond that, but those are some top of mind. Yes, yeah, sir. That's fantastic. I, I can visualize everything that you just described in terms of the casting and manifesting and the three P's planner process and then the plan. If I can just ask a quick question, follow up in terms of the process. Of course. You talked about 45 minutes out of, out of 120 taken in the tank and a lot of collaboration being that goal. But underlying collaboration, though, is often conflict and conflict resolution in terms of intellectual sort of disagreements, et cetera. What were some of the techniques or some of the, the times where you saw that things were not working out and, and how did you resolve those to gain the, the, the collaboration? Thank you. No, perfect. For instance, when we were when we created a one and two star level point of review, I was with my OSD counterpart. And I remember first I suggested that we did a worldwide VTC to just propose that idea. I thought a lot of people would react to it, but we explained why we would do it. And literally, every, the busiest command on the planet at that time, I think, was CENCOM. And they were the first ones to say, absolutely, we would love to do that. And every command essentially bought into it. So we had that level of review. And we found sometimes people will hold back in a meeting like that, or sometimes they'll be super vocal. And it's really part of it is to facilitate and help people work together as a team, right? We're all a team. But at the same time, I, I remember telling the, the group, I said, look, this is we really have to get everybody's input here as much as possible, because that's what's going to make this really strong. Right. We want to really this has got to be like a, a an intellectual dojo. We have to spar really hard here because we have to make sure that it's as prepared as possible for the three star level. So I think instilling a culture, an idea, or a, 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 a way of operating that welcomes and invites the input of as many people as possible and understanding, look, when people feel like they can be heard, it seems that it sometimes takes off maybe an edge because they know that they're going to be heard. And then you, you have to, as a leader, uh, value and consider what people have to say. Sometimes it may say something where you have to smooth it out a little bit or, but ultimately we all know we're trying, we're on the same team. It's the, it's the largest team in the planet and where it's all, the, the stakes are super high. So we all know that and we're trying to get to yes, to get to the best solution overall. So I think when you set a good tone and you welcome that input and I, to me, I, in some cases, you almost have to push for it, particularly for folks that may hold back. It's really setting the tone, Mark, I think. Yes, sir. That's great. I'm looking over at Carrie right now, and I think Peter Drucker comes to mind in terms of how a culture eat strategy for breakfast. But I think what you're saying is that you've got the culture that you've got to help drive that strategy, which is, I think, similar to what General Brooks said on this podcast, actually, about how they're not, it's not initially <laughs> binary. They are related. And so it's a good, I like how that plays out in your model. Yeah. So just a quick question for you, sir. You've been doing this for a long time. Are there any moments in terms of your career where you said, you know, hey, this is what my, this is my vocation. This is my calling. This is what I want to do. That kind of stand out in terms of maybe folks or, or leaders that you engaged with or moments and challenges you've overcome. 
Yeah, my, and I might offer, it's the kind of thing that we don't necessarily talk about too much from my experience in the military, but I might offer this and it may be of help to somebody who's listening to this because I heard someone explain, define calling. And it's a really simple formula. It makes a huge amount of sense to me, but define calling as when you put a passion plus experience plus a need. That's how you define a calling. And you may get ingredients of those three along the way. You may have a passion, but you may not have necessarily the experience, but you have a, a desire, and but there's a need. Uh, when I came into the 59 world, there was really, that it would be a miracle to be a colonel. It was a brand new field. But I think there were some things along the line. When I went through the advanced course, I started having a real interest in planning. I was given an assignment to basically our seminar was going to go through, our cohort was going to go through a, an, an attack. And I was assigned as the, the person who had to set up the defense that everyone had to attack through. And I had to try to set up the defense in a way that would obviously, hopefully be successful. And I remember going out to the, and this is in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and going out into the field and I had my big map board. It was just me out there. And it was just thinking about this bigger planning because I'd never been a part of something like that. And I just remember having this real sense like, this is really amazing um, to be able to set this up and really think through in advance. And it turned out that the, the defense beat the attack. <laughs> 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 to, my, to my surprise and <laughs> maybe self affirmation or appreciation. I felt that's pretty cool. I don't know if I made many friends with my peers. I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to set up a contentious thing, but I think they all thought they were going to take it to me and, and ended up being successful, but that was just a validating moment. But then becoming a 59 and going, getting an opportunity to go to Sam's, I mentioned, I was, if you know anything about my career, it's pretty much might've thought most people would have thought I was I myself thought it was pretty much over when I was a lieutenant colonel because it didn't look like I was going to go on in the infantry to the command track and higher levels. But they had this thing called 59. I had a real interest in that. And I was teaching at Command and General Staff College. Ironically, I was teaching the course that I wasn't accepted to because that's a whole story in of itself. But I, I felt like I can contribute to these officers. I'm, it's not what I get. It's what I give and I can contribute to this team. And then I, it turned out that I was able to, from there, go to Sam's and I became a 59. And it just gave me this whole new sense of an opportunity. And again, it would be at that point, not to, it wasn't for promotion. It was just because I had a real affinity for this concept of uh, operational planning. And then after that, going to CENCOM and it just seemed like it just clicked so well it really fit for me so it took a passion and then i was starting to get experiences and then i could see boy people really appreciate this planning piece i ended up going to the war college now where i was in lower 50 percent of my peer group now i find myself amazingly i'm in the top seven percent of my peer group i ended up going to the advanced strategic arts program and then going to iraq as chief of plans for mnfi and that was just you talk about having major pl 
planning, suddenly now, and then the finger in the chest, essentially, is the chief of plans for the drawdown planning. That was absolutely amazing. Um, and just a couple of other examples is working with General Mattis. And it turned out he would have me review plans that came from the J-5. And the first time I did that, I was pretty candid. And he came, we were on the, the, president, the presidential planes at the, the, the four stars. And he comes back and he sits next to me with the product. And I thought he was going to get upset at me. And he says, this is really good. And I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> I'm glad for that. And it turned out I ended up anytime he had something from like the strategic planning, operational planning side, I would give him feedback and it, to get his validation. So another example, those are just things. And then I just, I loved helping others, uh, leading, helping planners find their identity and their strengths. Uh, so these are things, and then just also reading and learning about, I remember in Afghanistan reading a book, I think it's by Charles Stanley. I think the book's called Listening to God or How to Listen to God, but he talked about how people can have different callings and he actually listed strategic planning as a calling. And I thought, wow, that, <laughs> this could actually be a, a real, I love it. I am passionate about it. I'm, I've got all these experiences and it seems like there's a real need. Let's get after it. So those are some examples of how I've, through my career, had a sense of a growing sense of a calling. Hey, sir, I really appreciate that story. And that kind of bring, brings me back to Tradoc flashback when you were a young one star at Arctic and we were on the elevator and I hadn't seen you in a long time. And we greeted one another and he said, Hey, Carrie, what are you reading? And I said, yeah, I'm reading this book. What got you there? Won't, what got you here? Won't get you there. And you go, that sounds really Great interesting. Book. And you go, tell me a little bit about it. I go, just the skills that get you, drives you up the rank, perhaps up to major. That's one set group of skills, but to go from major to colonel or even general, it's a different set of skills. And so we have a lot of young strategists that listen into this podcast. And just based on your experiences, can you elaborate on some of those skill sets that really make a good major? And then how those skills may evolve or change as you uh, move up the chain of command? Great question. In many cases, I think, thank you, Carrie. And again, just great to hear you and great appreciation for your service and your friendship. For the, in, in some ways, these three things that I've lined out, you can unpack those considerably. But I think there's a couple of also key lessons that I've learned over time. As a junior officer, I think I was pretty self-centered when it really comes down to it. And I, to me, when I wasn't selected for Command and General Staff College, I, it really struck me really hard. It was a very challenging time for me because I realized I'm in the lower 50% of my peer group. It looks like I'm, I may not even get promoted, but okay, no problem. I was like, it's not what I get, it's what I give. So what that was the big takeaway for me is that I may be done personally, professionally, but I'm not done in terms of my service. So not focusing, just this is more kind of thinking through why you do what you do. At the same time, trying to take care of people 
as you grow as a leader, absolutely essential. It's amazing. If you don't, if you're focused on yourself, it's really hard to take care of other people. But I also found that if you could really take care of people and invest in them. In fact, when I was at Command General Staff College, I, I was a seminar leader. So here I am with all my peers. They're the residency GSE guys, right? I'm the non-residency GSE guy. And I'm not, I'm just saying it's just the dynamic I was in. And I, we went to a leadership lecture. And after these lectures, we would out process on them as a seminar. And I thought, man, I got all these amazing majors in here. I'll, I'm going to ask them what they think the top three attributes of the best leaders are. And we went around the room and I put everyone on the board. Everything that they offered. And when we were done, there was only one thing that almost everybody had and nothing came close. And it was to take care of soldiers, take care of people. And I remember, wow, that is a very compelling point. From then on, I was absolutely riveted on not only trying to selflessly serve, but to take care of people, really invest in them, counsel with them, mentor, help them get their voice, turn them into essentially, like I say, I like to call it rock stars. You make somebody, you get, you empower them, you give them everything they need, and you let them run. That's getting that right person in the right place doing the right thing. And then being a team player, absolutely super, super important. The higher you go, the more important this becomes. But those three things can get you a long way. Selflessly serving, it's not about self, it's about others. It's not about what I get, it's what I give. It's taking care of people, really, don't just say it, but what can we do to actually take care of people? Nobody does these things perfectly, but these just became mainstays for me. And then being a team player. And I found that when people, when they get into trouble, it's usually, if you look at it, one of those three things applies. And it usually starts with the attitude of selfless service. Obviously it's one of our values in the army, but I like to say selfless service is not really selfless until it's selfless. And that's like a self-evaluation. So those are some maybe waypoints to serve professionally. I think, of course, as a junior officer, when you're given a task and you're given a plan, you got to really own that thing. And then as a more senior officer, how do you provide that? As someone said, that top cover to your junior officers, right? And then as you get as a higher level, how do you set a culture that enables leaders to lead and subordinates to flourish. I think that's fantastic, that, sir. I mean, just listening to you talk about I me, mean, it's about your your metaphor, the cube keeps coming back to mind, right? Where you're talking about methods that allow you as a planner, you as a person to then have that or drive that change across the entire globe. Yeah, nobody cares what you know until they know you care. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I know it, it could sound, it can sound quippish, but in a sense... I, I absolutely agree. If people know that you really care, they will work super hard if they know you genuinely care about them. And they can, it seems to me, they can tell. I know I can tell once if somebody really gives a rip about me or if they don't. Yeah. 
I don't want to keep bringing back uh, some of your old quotes, but uh, one that I do, and uh, if you could elaborate, is one of the keys that you said is a strategist must be the integrator of policy, strategy, and planning. And that was back, I think, uh, when you were a one-star in the joint staff. And I'd really appreciate if you could elaborate again on that for our young strategist. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Wow. You got to be careful what you say. Carrie, if you're taking notes, I'm glad. <laughs> Memory of an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be careful what I say, but they, yeah, I have come to conclude I, that's how I actually describe myself. I think if I have something to really offer, I have a, an innate ability to integrate. And what I mean by that is how do you take a lot of disparity and bring coherence? So part of it is almost using those three things. It's focusing as a planner on what it is, put it together in some kind of coherence and you need a structure and then a process to get everybody on board with it. But I do think that the you have to think through how things fit together. Now, for me, that usually comes from really studying the problem and then putting it against the structure so people can get it. The, we didn't really talk about it yet, but you take that ends, ways, means, then you have to turn it into an action plan, right? And so knowing what we tend to do uh, interestingly, is the same thing we do as platoon leaders at the higher level is to use that orders structure. On the joint staff, we created a national military strategy. It had very clear ends, ways, means. We created that first, and then we created five supporting campaign plans. And oh, by the way, they follow a general order format because everybody understands that. Right. So it, when that happens, then at your level, you're able to bring that together in a way that takes a, what tends to happen is a lot of disparity can become increasingly coherent. And then when you bring collaboration into it, people start catching on to it and you present it in reviews, people get input to it and it becomes tighter and tighter because I like to say that there are no Sometimes as planners, we may think that we have to own it all or know all those answers, right? I like to say there are no wild, wily coyote super genius planners. I've never seen one. I, it, in fact, if somebody thinks that they're that person, and I've just, I, I have seen a planner do this, and it was not a good outcome. But if a planner thinks this is when I was a very young major, and there was a senior planner. And he was coming up with plans and he thought he had all the answers and the plan plans don't survive first contact in most cases anyway, but it's really bad when someone thinks that they have the right answers and they haven't really collaborated on it. Yeah. Ch chances so are they're missing one of those ends, ways, or means, right, sir? They're mi they can be missing parts. There are things, invariably people know things that they can contribute that, you don't know as the planner. So our job, I like to say we're mediators between the commander and the staff and the units. And we have to balance that both ways. And maybe a final point on that, I, I can expound more if you want, but the you may be at the 
planning and strategy level, but maybe not necessarily at the policy level. But for instance, when we created the national military strategy, that informed the national security strategy, right? So there's this idea of, remember, actually, General Terry used to talk about this, the idea of leading up. If you get your level really tight and clear, then the higher levels will be able to graft into what you're doing just as the lower levels can graft into what you're doing. So as an integrator, you're not only integrating the ideas, you're integrating ideas in ways that are clear and concise and coherent so that people can execute them in a, the broadest sense. Yeah, that, I mean, that's absolutely... That, that makes sense? No, it does. And I think just using your model, I think what, you, what you're doing is you're, you're driving collaboration at echelons above where you're at if it doesn't exist, because really at the end of the day, what you're describing is very hard to do, right? I mean, it's particularly when you put your a vision out there that folks can then begin to pick at. And so if you're not humble about it, and if you're not willing to integrate expert feedback, then yeah, you're going to go down a pretty rough patch. So, you, I, go ahead, sir. You actually build, I, I, I think, Mark, part of it too, is you actually build buy-in. Sometimes like, when we do plan review, to be fair, sometimes people have like really good content review and then somebody like fixes the spacing on a slide and you go, okay, in your mind, you're saying that, right? But maybe it's a senior person says, hey, there's, do you know the font or simple things, but all that comes together, right? But then you right. say, yes, sir, we'll fix that. And so you fix it, but then everyone feels like they had a part of it. But what ends up happening is, I like to say, sets and reps as you go through your process that you build this collective consciousness. And at the same time, you're, in a sense, you're building ownership and empowering leaders, right? You're essentially, what we do as planners, we inform judgment for decision-making, right? So we have to convey information to inform knowledge in a way that's clear enough that people can get it and then own it and then execute it. And that that it is very hard, like you're saying. Uh, so it's this EQ, right? Your EQ is probably more important in some ways than your IQ. Absolutely. Yeah, no, sir, you're absolutely right. If I can go back to General Mattis for a minute, the warrior monk, I, I had the pleasure of taking him through the Senate confirmation process as a young major. And he was once asked, tell us about what got you to where you are in your career. He was asked that by a, a Senate staffer. And his reply I thought was fascinating. He said, every job I've had in the Marine Corps has assisted me in the next job that I had in the Marine Corps. And so when I hear you tell your story, was there something else about him in terms of working for him that that really was part of who you are, who you became as a senior leader? Absolutely. And as, I, as you were asking that, Mark, I was thinking he might be a really good person to have on this podcast. <laughs> if you um, can get him, sir, send I him mean, our way. We'll... He loved 59s. I served on his staff as a chief of the commander's action group for two years, cyclic rate of fire all over the world, nonstop, 24-7, 365, with an amazing team. Most of them were 59s on a joint command, and that was deliberate. General Mattis loved 59s. He said, we were the only service that invests in strategists. And he loves strategy because he, he sees that it's so important. It sets the atmosphere. 
fear and the azimuth for everything you do. I, I like to say I got a doctorate in strategic leadership working for General Mattis. It was the practicum. <laughs> I, like, I like to say I was two steps ahead of a paving machine with my laces <laughs> caught most of the time working for him, to be fair. Uh, but to General Mattis, you, there is the mystique and the kind of the myth. But when you really work with him closely, I would say like he has the phrase, no greater friend, no worst enemy. Sometimes in your staff, you wonder oh, which side of that coin you're on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you hope if you're on the friend side, it's a good thing. And he's, he definitely, he underwrites honest mistakes, many that I made. But to him, every second counts, every person counts. So we go to a social that he had and our families are invited. Sometimes we do that with the staff. He'd spend time talking with my kids. And he was never too busy for whomever was in the audience. And it was an absolute honor to serve with him. He's a, he, I have not qualified many people as national treasures. He's one. Yes. My views. Well, sir, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll try to get him on then. We'll, we'll oh, use your I, name. He'd be honored. I think he'd be honored to do this, Mark, to be fair. Sir, I, I know you've been very great, gracious with your time. I've got two questions. I think Carrie might have a, a third, but uh, sure. So, getting back to the collaboration, the skin in the game aspect of planning and strategy development, has there been a time where, you know, either as a planner or as a leader, you were just having trouble getting through to an individual or a planner or, you know, maybe an organization that was part of that bigger process? And would you mind sharing some of that, uh, how you negotiated that or navigated those waters? Yeah, there's probably a number of examples was one that comes to my mind in terms of the, the, the foremost. When I was the chief of plans in Iraq, 08 09, and we were responsible for the drawdown planning. Was, so you got there in the summer before President Obama was elected. I got there as an augmentee, chief of plans, and we started looking at the five commands that were in the theater and it turned out that only four of the commands had plans. The, at that point, MNFI is the senior command. 1003 Victor had really become the core's plan at the core level. And so we had this four-star level command that really didn't have a plan. We briefed it to General Odierno. We actually say when he first came in September, I briefed him on it. I, we, I was convinced of it, but I didn't want to be like putting a poking uh, four star. I just we just thought that there was room for an overarching plan for the theater. This is the integration. You have five commands, four plans, and there's nothing integrating all of the commands together. Amazing. We showed that to General Odierno and things are just going so fast in the theater and I wasn't sure how he'd respond. And I remember this, you know, extended silence. And then General Odierno says to me, I always thought we needed that. <laughs> <laughs> to my great relief, I was like, sir, we're... <laughs> That's what we're gonna, we're all about that. And we, that's what we think we should be doing as, as a plan shop for you is to create that overarching plan for the theater. And so we went to create the overarching plan and 
again, just socializing this new idea to all these leaders in active combat and saying, look, we really have to integrate the theater because right. we can't be doing training and engineering and war fighting and it's not all fitting together. It just <laughs> we're all doing great things, but we all ought to do them together. We're, obviously we are, but what's the plan that's driving that? What's the, and all of the commands agreed, except for the, the three-star core command. They were totally resistant. It was like <laughs> amazing. I'm thinking of anybody, we're, everybody's supporting the war fighting core and uh, they were completely resistant. And I kept literally, I kept going to the, in various venues saying, yes, the core has a plan. The core would say, we have the plan. I'd say, sir, whatever level it was, I said, sir, yes, you do have a plan, but it's not the plan. And I just continue to say that. I felt like just like pounding my head against cement over and over. It was really, really frustrating. I was really trying to get through. Finally, I was talking with my, I was with my boss, a one star at the time. I was a colonel and the two star from the Corps. And it's just the three of us. And we had this discussion. And I said the same thing. I said, sir, yes, you do have a plan but it's not the plan and he said you keep saying that and i'm like yes i do because i'm very convinced of this and he said no you keep saying yes but he says i want you to say yes and i'm thinking to myself literally i was like i'm in downtown baghdad and to be fair i just with all due respect i'm, I'm getting corrected on grammar, the way I'm presenting the words I'm using to present this idea. He said, I want you to say yes. And, and I said, I paused and I was like, sir, I know you have the plan. You have a plan. And we think there's a need for a broader theater plan. And he said, okay. Fascinating. And literally that was it put this EQ over IQ and just having a sense of what what matters to people I guess they were feeling threatened because it was a compelling idea but it was maybe they thought I was the way I was saying it was self-centered or something I was that wasn't it but I just it was a blind spot for me what weeks later the president called when he was inaugurated and he and that's when our planning began and we began a six month process to, in fact, create the overarching plan for USFI that became the plan that was the drawdown plan that integrated all five commands. And so what I was trying, what we were trying to do, what I was trying to sell as an idea became the reality. And that's what we ended up executing. I can tell you, sir, I was there in 2018. 2011, and uh, we were still largely executing that plan in terms of uh, for the drawdown. The plan lasted the you know the little bit of time. This is great. Oh yeah, no, it was a two. It was two years, and it was absolutely amazing. I'll tell you, I prayed hard, Mark, as we put that together, and we had an awesome team of planners. I was actually at the closing ceremony because I was working for General Mattis at the time, but nobody knew I was the the chief of plans at the ceremony. It was only about. 15 or 20 people in the Alpha Palace. And Secretary Gates came to the ceremony we handed off over to Iraq at the end of 2011. And, and that's where he said, do you know in the executionist plan, we have not had one loss of life. 
And I thought, wow. Mm. Mm. That, to me, again, a validation of this teamwork, the collaboration, the reviews, and helping everybody get this, and having the right planners, the right plan, and the right process. It, 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 I've never seen it fail. So I think you got, you got the working recipe there, and that's why we brought you on the, the podcast today. <laughs> I know there's a bunch of folks out there with just pages and notes right now. So, Sergis, we ask the last question of all of our guests. So what books are you reading, or what books would you recommend that have been formative? It can be fiction, nonfiction, or both. Sure. Hey, Mark, I'm going to offer one other quick point, if you don't mind. Absolutely. P- professionally. And I think just because for junior officers, it's tied to Carrie's point about planning and helping planners, particularly as one planner, a new planner is an ADA officer. He's really struggling with becoming a 59. And he was back and forth and he's like, sir, I just haven't found my identity. He, he, and I could see he was going to, he ended up becoming a fantastic planner as a major leading, a major effort that became essentially a global plan. And I found that in this identity issue that here's what can happen is you, as a planner, we are not the plan, but we can sometimes identify with really hard government work so much that we can't let go of it. I had this, I've had this happen personally, and I've seen planners have to work through this issue, but here's maybe the simplest way to explain this. My dad was a bartender. He was a teacher, but he in the summers, he would do some bartending and uh, when I was a kid and he would, he, I remember him saying the dynamic that he observed when people came to a bar, he said, first, a man takes a drink. Then a drink takes a man. And then a drink takes a drink. And it's a tough progression, but I actually found in planning that there's a kind of a similar dynamic that happens. And it's first a planner takes a plan. Right. And then a plan takes a planner. And what can happen is we can get so identified with our work that it can, I've seen people come to tears when maybe their plan is torn apart or reviewed. You just, you can't, it can't be you. But sometimes that's a really hard thing, right? Because as a 59, maybe, or as a, as a planner, you're really struggling with, hey, you want to make a difference. And sometimes your ability just to take correction, take input, take feedback becomes the yes and solution versus the yes but. And so you, you can get a win. Sometimes people just want to know how willing you are, or maybe they're testing you. So just to encourage planners as they're working really hard because they're working hard, be correctable, be teachable, and don't wear it on your sleeve. But in terms of books, a couple quick, I've got six here and I won't give you a synopsis of all of them, but uh, quickly, Halftime is an amazing book. A lot of people said, read that. I didn't read it till the end of my career, but I'd encourage anybody to read that at any time in their career. That is essentially about strategic planning for your life. Uh, Launch Your Dream amazing in terms of essentially strategic planning for business, but it's the same ideas as it is for the military. Here's a book that changed my life for sure. First things first. Uh, Second chapter in particular, my battalion commander gave me this book. Carrie, you remember Lieutenant, then Lieutenant Colonel Garrett, who became a three-star 
General Garrett. Oh yeah. But he, that book is amazing. And it's just super helpful in terms of really, and it turns out that the most important, not urgent thing, one of those things is planning. And you can really change an organization if you get deep and help people get out of urgency addiction and maybe focus on important things, but too focused on the urgent because they didn't take care of the not urgent things early enough. Necessary Endings, fantastic book. This is a great book on understanding because we come to a lot of transitions in our lives and wow, super insightful. From Good to Great, awesome. Most people have probably heard of that book, Jim Collins. And then What the CEO Wants You to Know. Again, how a larger enterprise operates. This is a really good distillation of how organizations, how businesses, in a way, some people, the military is a large industrial enterprise business aspect service and understanding macro how that works those are some really good ones that i've either been reading more recently if you want a more personal one how to do a how to do life with your adult children i just recently read and that's also wonderful if you have family and you want to get ahead of how to work with your children and set them up for success your family for success so how's that does that help mark i think those are great sir i've got three uh, three books for this weekend already so i really appreciate that last one too adult children oh yeah it's yeah. great. I think and, he's talking about me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Sir, again, we really appreciate your time. Best of luck with the uh, with the new endeavor. And if we can be of assistance or get you back on the podcast again, it'd be great. Yeah, we oh, really appreciate my it. honor. I, I have to say that your three keys to success of selfless service, taking care of people, and team player, just a, a plug for you. Nobody embodies those better than you. And I really appreciate having you on today. Wow. I appreciate that, Carrie. I hope in a small way, I, I live it, but I've, in any case, yeah, and just thank you again for your now nearly lifelong friendship and professional <laughs> service, Carrie. So honored. I'm so glad you were on there today. So if there's any way I can be of assistance to you guys, please let me know. And the 59s, if I'm glad to, to help anybody by email or by talking to Zoom, if, if that can be assistance. Okay, Mark? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I'll put the word out. All right. Thanks, sir. Have a great day. All great. the best to you guys. Thanks so much for your time. See you Merry Thanks Christmas. Thanks for the honor.